0: I'm sure you can finish these sentences. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and? Yeah, you know it. Cross my heart, and? Do you really, though? You know, these little sayings that we have in our society, especially even ones coming from when we were kids, reflects the idea that we are not truth-telling people. (laughs) Or even kids have little introductory phrases to demonstrate, oh, this time, I really am telling the truth. <laughs> no, Mom, Dad, this time, I promise, this actually is the truth. This is my third version of the story, but this is the one, I swear, cross my heart. And then you wonder if their fingers are not crossed behind their back <laughs> when they do so. And we understand our culture is filled with those who don't tell the truth. The world is filled with those who don't tell the truth. And so there are different uh, expressions woven into our society to demonstrate, no, this time I, I really mean it. And I, I think the word literally is functioning like that today, <laughs> where someone is telling you a story and they get to a part and they say, and literally this happened next, as opposed to the rest of the story, I guess you were making up, or I mean, what's the, the literally there for? But it's just a little indicator to say, no, this, this part, as extravagant as it is, is actually true. And that's the way our speech is, and we need speech like that because we're not necessarily truth-telling people. But the Bible presents a different standard for our speech. The Bible presents a different framework by how, we, how we're supposed to address one another. One that's not marked with lies or deceptions or exaggerations, but one that is marked with truth. Because God is a God of truth, and you know this, that God spoke the world into existence with his word. His word, of course, is Jesus Christ. When God speaks, he can only say what's in himself, and he says all that is in himself, and that is the word Jesus Christ, the exact image of God, the expression of his nature. Every element that is in the Father is spoken in the word Jesus Christ, and through the word he creates the world, and so the world is a world of truth. It's a world without deception, without error, that reflects the nature of God, and then sin enters into the world and corrupts. Our speech and so because of that sin has distorted the world it no longer reflects the exact nature of God sin has has tainted it and sin taints our own speech and our own motives and our own perception of truth and the Bible commands us therefore to only speak the truth if we're followers of Christ let me give you this morning my outline from this verse four reasons you should vow not to vow and I do mean that ironically Because I'm not going to end up taking this as an absolute prohibition against all forms of vows. We'll talk about that at the end. But I think James here has in mind this idea that your speech should be marked by truth, not by attestations of truth. (laughs) You should be known as someone who who does what he says he's going to do and doesn't do what he doesn't say he's going to do. And there's no room for deception or wiggling out of it. That your word in that sense is your bond because you worship a God who is truth but we're so often prone to make vows and to say oh this time i mean it or or literally or i promise you're not going to believe this but what follows is often a certain kind of, of vow and james says don't make those kind of vows you incur judgment he says it's just it's just wrong it's silly now, he says above all, brothers, and that phrase above all here, it's kind of a, a summary phrase. He's bringing together different strands in the, in the book here. It doesn't mean this is the most important thing he says in the book, but I do think, I mean, it could be rendered finally or in conclusion would be another way to render this, but I do think he means all of the truths in the book are kind of funneling towards this point. Not that this is the most important thing, but that everything else you've learned is seen in this point. What I mean by that is so much of James's given to you to discern the difference between true and false faith. You know, uh, true faith recognizes God's sovereignty over the world. False faith says God has nothing to do with the struggles in the world. True faith understands that God is at work through trials, and false faith says God's not doing anything. True faith seeks for wisdom from above. False faith thinks it can find wisdom below. True faith doesn't show a preference in the church. False faith looks at the outside and leverages it for an advantage. True faith understands that wealth belongs to God and uses it for for his glory and false faith tries to leverage wealth for unpersonal own personal gain. I mean, on and on throughout this book. And all of those stream to the heart. And you understand this, that, that true faith is seen in the heart. But there's no way to see that on the outside. The clearest window into a person's heart is through their speech. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so you want to know what's in someone's heart. You listen to their speech. And so that's why I think all of this is beginning to come together here at the end of the book. In this examination of personal speech. If someone has an authentic love for Christ, you're going to hear it in their speech. If someone worships the God of truth, they're going to speak truth. And if someone thinks that God's truth is unclear, or that God is a God who obfuscates, then their speech will reflect that as well. Let's look at this more carefully. First, the first reason you should vow not to vow is because of the nature of deity. Because of the nature of deity. There's only one God in this universe. And guess what? You're not him. (laughs) You're not him. And he's not hiring a replacement for himself either. (laughs) But so often our vows put ourselves in the place of God. It was common in Judaism, as you see here in verse 12, to swear by heaven or by earth. Somebody says, I I swear by heaven that this is true. Or I swear by everything on earth that this is true. And we don't often use those kind of expressions today, but in our own culture, we use the kind of expression that says, I vow something of, of value, and children especially will say that, like, I, I, I promise you my bike that what I'm saying is true. <laughs> you know, though, in other words, if I'm lying, I'd give you my bike. And that's supposed to, to be a demonstration that this time they really mean it because they're, they're hanging something of collateral, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> well, the problem with this is that heaven does not belong to you. If you say, I swear by heaven, well, is that yours? Are you in charge of heaven? I swear by all that's on earth that what I'm saying is true. Well, do you have the right to swear by that? Is it yours to swear by? And the answer is is no. And again, to Americanize it, it would be the equivalent of of saying this as an American, I I pledge by my neighbor's car that what I'm telling you is the truth. If I'm not telling you the truth, you can take that car. (laughs) Is it your car? No, but it's a nice car. It really is. I mean, you would like it. But you can't go take it just because I'm not telling the truth. And that kind of speech was common in Judaism, to swear by heaven and by earth. The idea is that you have such reverence for God that you clearly wouldn't be pledging or putting up heaven as collateral. That's where God dwells. It's his location. So I would only be pledging by God if I was really speaking the truth. But underneath all that is James's point here. You're pledging something that's not yours to pledge. You're swearing by something that isn't yours. The English example of, I swear by my grandmother's grave. It's her grave, okay? Stay out of it. (laughs) (laughs) And even the pledge by my own head, which is something Jesus is going to rebuke in the Sermon on the Mount, I I pledge by my my head. And he goes on to talk about hair color there, but underneath that kind of pledge is this idea, it's the American equivalent of cross my heart and hope to die. If If I'm not telling the truth, you can take my head off. Well, listen, your life is not yours to give either, any more than heaven is. Don't pledge heaven because it's not yours. Don't pledge earth because it's not yours. And don't pledge your life because it's not yours either. God alone owns life. He alone can take your head, which he may very well do as a consequence for sin. But it's not yours to offer up. And this is really the theme of this last part of James chapter 4 about those who boast about tomorrow, and the first part of 5, those who boast about wealth and riches, is that those are things that you don't own. You may have wealth, but it's not yours. It belongs to God. You may think you have tomorrow. Your day planner has next year in it, but it doesn't belong to you. Just because you own your day planner doesn't mean you own those days, Your future belongs to God. And this is why James says, come on now, you who say today or tomorrow I'm going to go to such and such a city and buy and sell and make a profit. Who do you think you are exactly? Your life is a mist. You don't know if you'll be here tomorrow. You don't know what city you're going to go to tomorrow. Vows are leveraging something or claiming something that do not belong to you. Even when you make something, promise, you know? I promise I'll visit you next Christmas. Do you think you'll be alive next Christmas? I mean, are you sure? Are you gonna, play, are you gonna leverage your word? You're gonna, make your, you're gonna hang your integrity on the line about you being alive next year at Christmas. How can you do that? It does not belong to you, but this is human arrogance. We don't, that doesn't even cross our mind when we promise we'll do something tomorrow. I promise I'll do it tomorrow. You promised you'll be alive tomorrow. You can't promise that. So don't speak like it. Tomorrow does not belong to you. There's only one God, and it belongs to him. Vows like this are arrogant because they elevate your own will to the position of authority. Even in something simple like this. You know, I promise I'll come visit my grandma next week in indiana i don't have a grandma in indiana this is me just making this up i promise i'm going to visit my grandma in indiana next week okay well then the flights get canceled because of a snowstorm the highways get closed now my vow is void i can't do it i turn out to be a liar because of the weather which i'm not in control of how silly is that why not avoid the whole problem and just not vow and say, Grandma, I would love to come visit you next week. Lord willing, I'll do it. But you're not in control of the weather. And the kind of person that thinks they are, the kind of person that thinks that their word has some kind of efficacy to it or, or power to it is the person that gets, wound, they're arrogant and they get wound up and they get uh, abrasive and they berate the customer service agent at the airline. <laughs> what do you mean they're snow? I paid for that ticket. Who are you? <laughs> You don't understand, I gave my word. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll let the snow gods know you gave your word. I mean, who are you? Your word does not have that kind of power. And people often leverage their own vows for sanctification, you know, somebody who's, who's dealing with a besetting sin, and there's two categories of sin in someone's life, okay? Someone who's dealing with, uh, who has a sin in their life that they're not repenting of, that they're not actually taking issue with, they're not fighting it, that person needs willpower. That person needs to be convinced his sin is wrong and have the willpower to fight it, okay? That's this person, we're not talking, we'll talk about him next week. This week, <laughs> the other category of sin, somebody who's got a besetting sin in their life, they're, so they're aware that it's sin, they're aware that they're fully aware it's sin and they keep doing it and they want to repent of it and they want to do battle against it you know what's not missing from this formula is willpower that second person I'm talking about for that person to say i hereby vow i'm not going to sin anymore i hereby vow i'm not going to do this sin anymore well your vow has no power to sanctify you it's just arrogance it's just arrogant as if god were to say oh yesterday when you repented of that sin I didn't take you seriously enough but now you vowed so now I know you'll be holy. Your vow cannot sanctify you. Nobody is sanctified by a vow. Otherwise just say this. Try if vows work just do this with me. I hereby vow I'll never sin anymore ever. <laughs> Your vow doesn't do it. The fact that you had the courage to make the vow doesn't mean you have the sanctification to keep it. So understand that there's only one God. And his spirit sanctifies. You don't have the willpower to sanctify yourself. You don't ha- You're not sovereign over your circumstances. God is sovereign over your circumstances. You are not. That's why James says back in chapter 4, instead say, today or tomorrow, if the Lord wills, I'll do this or I'll do that. And he's circling back to that again in verse 12. And just saying, don't swear by heaven or earth. Come on. Just say what you want to do. There's only one God. And we've talked about this before. It's always best to let your yes be yes and your no be no. Hold your future with an open hand and say, hey, I'd love to come visit you next week, but if the airports close and the roads close, hey, I'm holding this with an open hand. Say, you know, I want to go to this school, but I'm holding this with an open hand. You know, you understand that some things are out of your control. I think of the college student who says, I hereby vow I'm going to go to you know, the college junior, I mean, sorry, the high school junior, or high school junior, and they say, I hereby vow I'm going to go to, let's pick a really good school, the University of New Mexico. I hereby, <laughs> I hereby vow I'm going to go to the University of New Mexico. Well, you apply and you don't get in. And so what do you do? You show up and say, no, you don't understand admissions department. I made a vow that I would go here. I mean, that's cute and all, but you'll get arrested for trespassing. <laughs> you're not sovereign over your circumstances in life. So don't make vows about them. Hold your future with an open hand and say, God, I want to do my best to serve you. But you close doors, I'm not going to walk through them. You open doors, I will walk through them. Let me just live my life that way at your mercy. So first, there's only one God, you're not at, So be aware of deity. Secondly, be aware of hypocrisy. Be aware of hypocrisy. There's something about vow making that lends itself to hypocrisy. That lends itself to you making such a fuss about speaking the truth when in reality you're making a lie despite your vow. I've heard parents refer to this as technical truth telling. You know, I'm technically I'm telling the truth. Like one girl comes in, my sister hit me, and that sister comes in, did you hit your sister? No, I did not. I promise I didn't hit her. Okay, so... Ten minutes of investigation later, consult the closed-circuit TV coverage, and <laughs> if only. After ten minutes of investigation, you, you, it turns out, lo and behold, she guessed, I guess she didn't hit her sister, but she did kick her, and she did throw something at her, and she did, you know, shove her, but she didn't hit her. So she was speaking the truth, I guess. No, she was not speaking the truth. <laughs> That's that kind of hypocritical truth-telling that is so common when you start making vows. It becomes technicalities at this point. I promise I didn't do X. I did X.1, W.9, but I didn't do X. That technical truth-telling leads to hypocrisies. Now, the Jews had a whole system around vows. The Jews in Jesus' life and the life of James, they said that it was wrong to lie and it was wrong to make vows that you wouldn't keep. So they would grant that that was wrong. However, there's different categories of wrongness. (laughs) And one category of wrongness, the worst category of wrongness, would be a sin against God and against the Torah. And so if you made a vow to God and and to the Torah and you broke that, then you were in grave danger. That was a big time no-no. You'd be condemned by the, the Jewish religious aristocrats of the day. But if you made a vow by God or by the Torah, instead of to God or to the Torah, then that was different. You were allowed to to break that vow. Now, it's still wrong to break your vow, but it's not as wrong as, you're not bound to that vow, in other words. In other words, all the legal restrictions for you breaking a vow, it might be wrong to break the vow. The Jews had a whole system of legal restrictions to punish you if you broke a vow. Those legal restrictions only kicked in if you made the vow to God. Now to complicate this, the Jews wouldn't say the name of God. They wouldn't say Yahweh. Kind of like some of our English Bible translations will take Yahweh's name in the Old Testament and put it in all caps, Lord in all caps, to keep you from accidentally saying Yahweh. You're supposed to see it. Oh, it's all caps. It's code for something. The Hebrew didn't have all caps. He didn't have capital letters. So the Jews, they wouldn't say Yahweh's name. They would substitute something for it. So they would say, instead of I swear by Yahweh, they would say I swear by the temple. And so that became a big debate. If you swear by the temple, are you bound to your vow or not? And it all hinged on this. Is the person using the temple to substitute for God's name? Then they would be bound by it. Or are they using the temple to get out of their vow? Then they wouldn't be bound by it. It was a whole system of hypocrisy. You know, for example, they ruled that you could say, uh, I vow to Jerusalem. You're bound to that because the Lord put his name in Jerusalem. But if you said, I I vow by Jerusalem, you're not bound by it, because the Lord's name isn't by Jerusalem, it's in Jerusalem. This whole system, I swear by the the gold of the temple, you're bound to that kind of vow. I swear by the temple, not bound. You see how the whole system lends itself to hypocrisy. This is nothing more than the American equivalent of my fingers were crossed. (laughs) Your words are designed to convey that you're speaking the truth and that you'll be bound by it. But at the end of the day, you had your fingers crossed. And I remember this is a, a parent first encountering this, <laughs> this whole thing. You said you would do this. Yeah, but my fingers were crossed. And it's tempting to say, well, I said I'd give you dessert, but my fingers were crossed. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you don't play by those. They're bad rules. Don't play by them. <laughs> as tempting as it could be. Vows lend themselves to hypocrisy. So don't play that game, in other words. Don't make vows because they're just so useful for shrouding deception in the trappings of truth. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 23. I don't know if you can see it on the screen, but I'll read it for you. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater? The gold? Or the temple that made the gold sacred. In other words, Jesus is saying, even if I bought your rules, they're backwards. (laughs) They're backwards. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound to his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it. And everything on it. And whoever swears by a temple, swears by it. And this phrase, and him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. In other words, Jesus cuts right through the hypocrisy and says if you are swearing by anything, you're swearing by God. So don't do it. Don't do it. Thirdly, third reason for you not to make vows is because of integrity. Integrity. Don't make vows because of the nature of deity, the nature of hypocrisy. Thirdly, because of the nature of your own integrity. Integrity. The need to take an oath or give an oath already casts doubt on your character. You understand this, right? If you say something and the response from those you say it to is, do you promise? That casts a big shadow over your integrity. I've told you this before, but I remember learning this lesson as a a dad. Uh, Deidre was at Bible study or something, so I just had the girls that night and they said, can we go to Dairy Queen? And I say, hmm, mom's away? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's go to Dairy Queen. And then, well, I don't even remember which one, but one of them says, do you promise? Wait a minute. <laughs> what do you mean by that? No, I don't promise. I'm not promising you anything. Come on. And it gives you a little window in their hearts, in the little kids' hearts, They're already learning that, hey, dad said this, but if he promises, then he'll really have to do it. And that's not a healthy place to be. And how how insane would it be for a parent to then say, okay, I promise. huh?" Don't embrace the two categories of truth. (laughs) That, yeah, there's my word, but then there's my extra word. No, you teach your kids, listen, God holds the future, not you. Yeah, I'll take you to Dairy Queen, but if the car doesn't start, or if mom calls and needs me to bring her something, or if a neighbor needs help, then we're not going to Dairy Queen. And how bad of a parent would it be to say, oh, a neighbor needs help, or mom needs me to bring her something. I can't do those things because I promised my kids to take them to Dairy Queen. Huh? Just be done with that whole system. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, and your kids understand when dad says something, he means it. Unless the Lord closes a door or has a a better opportunity somewhere else, and you embrace that even as a child, The mere act of swearing casts suspicion on the trustworthiness of the one who swears. Philo, the Greek philosopher, says this, quote, To make an oath is only, as people say, the second best voyage. And this is a world without, you know, airline travel. So it'd be like, you know, the best way to get from Corinth to Jerusalem would be a nonstop boat. Or, you know, Israel, nonstop boat. But if there's a storm, you have to go through Crete. It's the second best way. The American equivalent would be you want to fly from D.C. to L.A., there's a nonstop flight, but if that flight gets canceled and they route you through Atlanta, it's all right. It's the second best way of going. There's a better way, but you get stuck with this. What Philo means by that is having to swear an oath is the second best opportunity. Best would just be you speaking the truth and people believing you. I mean, I guess if you have to promise, it's okay, but it's just casting suspicion on your own integrity. If your life becomes committed to consistent honesty in every statement, insinuation, implication, then oath-taking is totally unnecessary. Instead, let your yes be yes and your no be no. I've met people that say, no, you don't understand. I always keep my word. That is the definition of self-righteous. That you think... Your ability to keep your word makes you righteous. You're looking for your righteousness in yourself. That is self-righteousness. That should have no place in Christians. Christians don't draw righteousness from themselves or their own effort, the own authenticity of their word. That's not what makes you righteous. What makes you righteous is that God is a righteous God. He is a truth-telling God. So you keep your word because you worship a truth-telling God. Not that I keep my word because I keep my word. No, I keep my word because God is sovereign and he speaks the truth. But when you say it like that, that uh, opens the door for you to understand that circumstances change. Flights get canceled, etc. Very different than you making a vow. Unlike God, you're not sovereign over your circumstances. But listen to this. Like God, your word should be true. That's the difference. God's words are true. Your word should be true. God is sovereign over circumstances. You're not. And this is why you shouldn't vow and think your vow has weight, but why you should keep your word. And more often than not, God directs your future through your, through your commitments, through your yeses and your nos. And you understand that. I learned this lesson the hard way. I was teaching uh, high school a Christian school in Los Angeles, and I was the interim pastor at a Baptist church out at 29 Palms Marine Base. Some of you have done time out there, I'm sure. And I, I, love, I actually loved it out there, that high desert place, I loved it. I was single, and I wanted to be the pastor of that church so bad. I thought this was the coolest church. I loved the people there, and I just liked that. I liked that high desert world, and I wanted to be the pastor, and they didn't have a pastor, and after me being the interim for a year there, I thought I'd end up being the pastor there, but their elders, there was one elder who did not want to have a single pastor, and I was single at the time, and so, you know, I think there was five elders. Four of them were all in with me being their pastor, and one said no, not a single guy. And so they kept waiting to try to work through that issue with that guy, and it was time for my contracts to be due at Village Christian. And I I had to turn in my contract to teach next year on a certain date. I told the elders, on this date, I have to turn in my contract. And maybe there should have been more clarity because that date came. I didn't hear from the church. I turned in my contract for the next year. And then that night I get a phone call that the one elder stepped off the elder board, resigned for the sake of unity of the elders. So he stepped off. So they were going to ask me to be their pastor now. So great. I'm thinking, yes. I go to church or school the next day and go speak to the superintendent. This older man, he was a charismatic Methodist, this guy. And uh, he definitely had a category in his head for the Lord told me this and the Lord told me that and it's true and so I was kind of banking on that and I was there as soon as he got in in the morning I run up to him and I tell him this is what happened I signed the contract yesterday it's in your box you know can I take that back let's just pretend that <laughs> no, <laughs> nobody saw this this would be perfect and I could go to my dream job in Yucca Valley and he says you know has it occurred to you that sometimes the Lord closes a door through your own word What? (laughs) What kind of crazy talk is this? (laughs) Just rip up the contract and let's move on with life. (laughs) He says, no, I think think the Lord is protecting you from something through your own word or opening a different opportunity through you. Why don't you just trust his providence? The Methodist lecturing me on providence. (laughs) (laughs) What's happening here? (laughs) Just trust your own providence that the Lord's closing that door for you. Huh. And, and I did. I mean, I listened to that advice. I wish I would have known that on my own, but I listened to that advice. And through that, I was able to meet Deidre and, and get married, which I would not have met her in 29 Palms, that's for sure. <laughs> I see God's kindness in directing me through my own yes and my own no. Again, not that this is, not that this is an absolute rule. There's certainly circumstances in life or even contracts in life where with the wisdom of elders and the wisdom of those that are committed to it, you talk through and it's wisest for you to to disengage from that or to, to not keep the contract. There can be situations where that happens. This isn't a law here. It's the principle. But I'm telling you, that principle is more often right than you think. Think of your own integrity and follow it. And then finally, fourthly, the nature of community the nature of community so the nature of god in other words what god is like the nature of hypocrisy what you are like the nature of integrity what god wants you to be like and finally community what god wants the church to be like now here is where you need a little bit of biblical theology and i want to just give you a contrast with marriage cuz the bible has a lot to say about vows more than we often think and the trajectory of vows in the bible follows the trajectory of marriage in the bible and allow me to explain in the garden god designed marriage one man one woman for life sin enters the world tears that the fall happens sin in the world you start to see polygamy and adultery Lemech in genesis chapter 4 marries multiple wives there becomes rules for polygamy Throughout the Bible, there becomes a punishment for adultery. God, when he gives his law, gives laws to regulate multiple wives and to regulate polygamy. Even David has multiple wives. Abraham, not exactly sexually faithful there either. And that's the nature of marriage in the Old Testament. God's standard was husband and wife for life. Sin mars that and God gives rules to govern the fallen condition of it. But then when the church comes on the scene and God builds his church, he gives a very interesting requirement. To be an elder in a church, you have to be a husband and one wife. In other words, the standard for the church is gonna be different than the standard for Israel. Israel had believers and non-believers alike in it, and so they had laws to govern living, living in a fallen world. You mean, David could not be an elder in the church. You understand that, right? He's not qualified. The church has a different standard. It's a different kind of group of people. And I think most, most of us understand that trajectory. The same thing happens with vows. In the garden, there should be no vows. There should be no lies. Because God speaks his word. His word, of course, is Jesus Christ. The word speaks the world into existence. There should only be truth on the earth. But sin enters in. The first sin was not the fruit. Remember, the first sin was the lies told in the garden. The, Satan introduces things that aren't true to Eve's thinking. He lies to Eve. Eve lies right back and says, God said not to eat or touch the fruit, which God did not say. So there is now deception in the garden. The devil lying to Eve, Eve lying to the devil. This is all before the fruit was touched. Lies have entered the garden. Adam and Eve fall into sin. The world falls into sin. The world is filled with unrighteousness. Now there's a need for truth-telling. There's a need for vows. There's a need for, for people in a fallen world to say, no, this is the truth. For there to be a legal system, you have to have penalties for perjury, knowing that people normally lie. So here we're ramping it up. God in the Torah gives commands to regulate vows. I mean, you see this even before the Torah, though. Abraham made vows he got his seven sheep together and made vows with Abimelech about the nature of the well that he found. and here's the seven sheep and I vow to you about this well later Abraham makes uh, Isaac take a vow to him that he'll Or sorry makes his servant make a vow that he'll find a wife for Isaac among the Canaanites not from among the the heathen women and to make that vow he had to put his hand on the mark of circumcision I mean that's an insane vow right there <laughs> Abraham did that. And then the law comes and the law says it governs these vows. Now the the gist of the law of Leviticus 19 verse 12, don't swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God because I'm Yahweh. So the the gist of the Torah is don't make false vows. But it elaborates beyond that. Deuteronomy 23 verse 21, if you make a vow to Yahweh your God, don't delay in fulfilling it because Yahweh your God will require it of you. So basically the gist is don't make a vow. But if you do, keep it. But if you refrain from vowing, you won't be guilty of sin. And and if you reject your vow, God will require it of you and you will be guilty of sin. Be careful to do what's passed from your lips. Because you voluntarily vowed to Yahweh your God what you have promised with your mouth. The point of that is it's better for you not to vow. But if you do make a vow, you better keep it or God will judge you. Here's another example. This Numbers chapter 30 verse 3. If a woman makes a vow to Yahweh and binds herself by her pledge while within her father's house in her youth, and her father hears of her vow and her pledge, which she has bound herself and says nothing to her, then her vow stands. But if her father hears of the vow and opposes her on the same day he hears of it, her vow is null and void. Yahweh will forgive her because her father nullified it that's a little i mean it's better if nobody makes vows but because you live in a fallen world here's a, a woman who lives under her father's authority if she makes a vow and her father hears about it, her father can say no we're not vowing that we're not pledging this no and god won't require it of either of them god develops a system for living in a fallen world now you get to the church and the church's standard is not the torah the church's standard is not abraham the church's standard is a different elevation, a different kind of righteousness. It's just like it is with marriage. Matthew 5, verse 33. I'll put this on the screen so you can see it. Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, speaking of the Old Testament, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to Yahweh what you've, or to the Lord, what you have sworn. That's quoting Deuteronomy. But I say to you, this is Jesus talking, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or by the throne of God or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem. For it's the city of the great king. This is things that the Jews often swore by. Do not take an oath by your head. In other words, for your own life, because you can't make one hair white or black. Praise God for that. <laughs> Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything else comes from evil. This will be the standard of righteousness in the church. Do you understand what Jesus is doing here? He's letting the readers know that he's giving a new command for a new era. Or a new covenant. The new covenant will have a new righteousness which makes a new community or the new community will have a new ethic which surpasses that of the old covenant. Basically the point here is that the Messiah produces a different kind of righteousness than Moses. Moses couldn't sanctify Israel to this extent but Christ can sanctify his church to this extent. In other words in the church there should be no vows. Why would you make a vow to somebody? Why would you make a, a, a promise to somebody in the church? We're all truth-tellers here, and we know that that's not entirely true. We know that we're sinners and we lie, but we know there's forgiveness of lying, and we know that vows don't cover up lies, but only the forgiveness of Jesus Christ can do that. So when you tie all that together, you understand that there's an entirely new ethic in the church because the righteousness of the Messiah is categorically different than the righteousness of Moses. We should live differently, marry differently, Manage our money differently, pursue sanctification differently, and speak differently than they did in Israel. Now, there's all kinds of practical applications of this. I wish you had more time to talk about them, but here's some major ones, I think, specifically for our church. I know a lot of you take oaths of office and promotion oaths and all that. You're promoted in the military, you redo your, your oath or your commission. Where you promise or you vow and i th- i mean those are fine i don't think this is a biblical prohibition james 5 12 is not banning those kind of promotion oaths or being sworn into a government agency or taking an oath there because those oaths are all external facing what i mean by that is you're taking them in the context of non-believers um it's it's the military <laughs> you know <laughs> lying is allowed so, so to speak <laughs> No, it's the military, and so there's, you're, you're talking to non-believers. Other non-believers are taking the same oath, uh, oath you are. So it makes sense for a solemn occasion for you to swear to execute you know, the duties of your office. There are Quakers and some groups of Anabaptists that won't let their members take those kind of oaths of office or promotion oaths, but I don't think these are forbidden by James 5, verse 12. Again, because you're dealing in the world at that point. But this is why the church doesn't have those kind of things. You know, when the church adds a new elder or hires a new pastor or something, they don't take an oath of office. <laughs> do you promise to actually be a good pastor and not be a slacker villain? Yes, I do. What about marriage vows? You know, marriage vows started in the 1500s as a result of the Protestant Reformation. In the Catholic Church, there were no vows. It was the priest just declared it. Marriage was a sacrament. When the Protestant Church breaks away from the Catholic Church, they take marriage away from the authority of the priest. Now in the Christian Church, see people can Get married to each other on your own volition. The priest can't tell you to and the the government can't tell you to. When you're married in Christ, it's your own volition that comes together. And that's why I think it's appropriate for you to make a pledge to each other. But I I think it's exactly right how how we do it in in Christianity. You know, say, do you take this woman to be your wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, to treasure, to have eyes for her only, to all your worldly goods with you to share, you know, the typical vows. And at the end, if so, say, I do. I mean that's, I think that's, exact, that's the right amount to say right there, because you would get nervous if you're like I do. I promise, I promise, I promise, and this time I mean it. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> or what? If the guy says the groom says I do, and the, the pastor says okay, but I need some kind of cover. I need some kind of collateral on this one. <laughs> no, I think it's just it's right to say I do. And that's the right amount of pledging. Courtrooms. When you testify in a trial, you're sworn in. Again, that's external facing. It's to the world, to a jury, to a judge that's used to dealing with liars. Even Jesus took one of those oaths, Matthew 26, verse 63. At his trial, the high priest said, I want you to swear about the accusations against him, and Jesus did. I think it's right to take courtroom oaths, but those, again, are all external facing. the end of all this, we just understand that God is a God of truth, There is forgiveness of lying and that forgiveness is through Jesus Christ who is the word of truth. Forgiveness is found in Jesus who is the very word of God. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray that our congregation will be marked by those who speak the truth. We speak the truth not because we pledge to speak the truth. We speak the truth because we love you. And you're a God of truth. I think this week of a man I talked to who's been caring for his wife in the nursing home for a decade, visiting her all the time and caring for her. His wife can't speak, and he visits her all the time to care for her. The kind of person does that because he loves his wife. That's a power in love that is more than the power of a vow, it's a power in love that's more than a power of commitment. I pray that we would be like that towards you. That we would speak the truth because we love you. And that any commitments, any yeses, any no's that we make would flow out of the fact that we love you, our Savior, and you are a God of truth. You're a God who forgives us for our sin, which we need often. But we're a God. We worship a God who is a God of truth. Praise pray that your glory would go forward with us this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me invite you all to stand. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington DC area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.